And we're back. Thanks so much for joining us here today on UWO Now. I'm Wendell Ray. Today we're talking with Dr. Michael Rutz, who is the chair of the history department at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. And we're talking today about the royal family. Of course, uh, Queen Elizabeth II, she passed in September. Her son Charles, now King of England. And we're asking the questions, what's the relevance, not just outside of the United, uh, the United Kingdom, but within the United Kingdom, what does the royal family mean? And will Charles have basically the same type of reign that his mother had, not in terms of longevity, but in terms of presence and what, if any, kind of changes he might want to bring uh, as king of England? Let's talk about um, England's history. Uh, there's a lot of money going on with the royal family. How do Britons account for a family having such immense wealth uh, when they are typically, just as you mentioned, very basically symbolic? Um, it's perplexing to some. Uh, it's and- perplexing in a way to us as Americans, for sure, and you know other folks uh, around the globe who who don't sort of come up within a monarchical system. Um, yeah, you know, there's a real difference. I mean, I think, and this is something I often try to kind of convey to my students as I'm teaching about some of these periods. We we obviously have inequalities and hierarchies in the United States, but they tend not in most cases, to be kind of built or justified around uh, a source, a sense of like natural inequality, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's exceptions. Obviously, our racial divide, for example, that was built on assumptions of natural inequalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we strive to overcome that. And, of course, with the legacy of the empire and and everything, Britain wrestles with those same issues. Um but I think that sort of broader sense in which we think about aristocracy and monarchy, right? That uh, a, a kind of traditional attitude that suggests by virtue of, of birth and nature, certain people are here while other people are here. And that's um, kind of what I mean. Um, yeah. Do you think that um, Charles will, <clears throat> or as even future uh, monarchs, um, will try to acknowledge those that kind of discrepancy, uh, not just kind of not discuss it, not yeah. acknowledge it. But, you know, I mean, there is there are a lot of people who see the monarchy as very hypocritical. Mm-hmm. Um, you you build your wealth over centuries by pillaging other nations and <laughs> taking their w- resources yeah. and then proclaiming yourself sovereign over mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Uh, and everybody says that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that that's, and I think we're already seeing it. I mean, if you just scroll through, um, you know, the, you know, I'm scrolling through the New York times and the Washington post and, and what have you on my phone. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are many articles talking about, um, so what's the possibility that, uh, those former colonies that still recognize the crown as symbolic head of state, uh, you know, will they, uh, will they break away? Will they, you know, declare themselves republics? Will they sort of sever that tie now? Um, 
as there are all of these sort of uh, recognitions of all of the, I think, genuinely right positive um, things that that the queen did in terms of performing her public duties and obligations and things of that sort. It's like, okay, but at the same time, (laughs) she symbolizes the crown, which exactly has this past of colonial exploitation and um, connections to the slave trade and to, you know, all of those sorts of things. Um, And so there's very much an open question of sort of what do we do with that? And I think the longevity of the queen has made that interesting in that she sort of presided over the end of empire in the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, I think largely did so in a way that acknowledged the realities of that shift and transition. Didn't put up a fight in any real sort of way to, to change that. Um, and sort of said some of the right things at the time about, um, the idea of, of independence. Um, but never really then took the next step to a kind of reckoning to sort of say, and we're sorry for all of that that happened. Uh, or, or uh, you know, we need to entertain ways to, to make an accounting for and a kind of reckoning for those sorts of things. And, you know, the other thing that you hear, you know, I'm reading some articles that talk about younger people particularly who maybe have a little bit less emotional attachment to the monarchy who, who, who I think for a lot of older Britons, the queen still symbolizes a sort of age in the past when Mm -hmm. Britain was more important, more powerful, more prominent. Um, And so there's a kind of nostalgia for that. And they connect that with the the queen and that, that helped to, I think, lift her popularity Younger Britons don't have quite that same connection. And so if you just look at opinion polls, you know, the monarchy is sort of popular amongst the 65 and up crowd, certainly. But if you look at 18 to 34, it's it's more of a mixed bag, uh, you know, maybe about a third saying that they strongly support the idea of the monarchy or something like that. They don't have those connections and ties. So they're asking those sort of more critical questions. And I think the longevity of the queen However, even young people are, well, you know, she was kind of like our nice grandma who was, you know, uh, just sort of there and around. Right. And it's going to be sad. Um, So nice grandma doesn't really then get you sort of asking critically, what about all the symbolism of that imperialism? What, What about all the consequences of that, that empire and what it did? And so it'll, I think it's going to be interesting to see whether her passing and the transition now to a new monarch and Charles opens up more of that dialogue. And I don't know if Charles will sort of lean into having conversation about that reckoning over the imperial past, but I think there will be a lot of pressure for him to, um, and we could potentially see some more formal acknowledgements that might try to apologize for lack of a better word, um, you know, for, for elements of that colonial past. And not only is there symbolic imperialism, um, but there are the actual, there is the actual wealth that exists Mm -hmm. that only, uh, is owned by, as I understand it, the Royal family. So the question then is how do they continue to hold on to this wealth? Today and I'm imagining this 
it's a lot. I mean, with the crown jewels, them, yeah, it, you know, that's a yeah. lot of money right there. But I mean, there's a, a lot of money we're talking right. about. Um, yeah, and and it's it's complicated in in some ways, right? There there are many layers to it. I guess is what I should say. Right? Yes. They're very symbolic things. Yeah, exactly. Like the crown jewels, right? So you have these giant diamonds, whether it's the Kohinoor, which came from India, mm -hmm. um, and is in one of the crowns, or whether it's the the diamonds from South Africa that are part of the scepter and the crown and so forth. And so there you're already hearing the conversations about, you know, this is sort of symbolic appropriation of the wealth and resources of these former colonies and they should be given back. Um, but then, you know, on another level, while they're big expensive diamonds, um, you know, on the, on the sort of monetary side of it, they're sort of pittance compared to the actual wealth, right? The, um, Prince William, now Prince of Wales, mm -hmm. next in line to the throne to his father, um, inherits the Duchy of Cornwall, which had been his father's primary possession. Um, and the wealth of those properties is estimated at about a billion pounds. Um, wow. And that, that's not even overseas. or That's just all within the southwestern part of the UK. Farms and, and properties, rent and you know various other cons of income and so forth. Um, so it is enormous sums of money um, that we're talking about here. Um, but that's not public money. Those are private land holdings of the crown going back centuries. Um, one way the crown has over the last 30, 40 years tried to address this is they do take a lot less public money than they used to, oh, right? Gee, that's real nice. <laughs> Generous of them, right? But uh, you know, <laughs> and I'm not I, trying I, to be. No, no, I agree. And 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 fair. You got more than enough yeah. money to pay for themselves. They don't necessarily need to be taking these public taxpayer-funded uh, incomes as well. So one way they've tried to address that is to say, okay, we we do. We're taking significantly less public money. We're spending more of our own money to do this stuff. Um, that operates on a little bit different level of, of how do you handle the appropriated wealth of the former colonies. And then, of course, interestingly, I think there's a broader conversation that's going on in the world today about income inequality and wealth more generally. Yes. Right. Um, yeah. Is it hypocritical and unfair for the, the, the queen or the king, you know, to be kind of a billionaire? Um, and, and how do you account for that? Um, but, you know. Relatively speaking, you know, compared to Jeff Bezos or somebody, you know, Charles is, eh. <laughs> you know, so so there's also that sort of broader global issue of like wealth and and where do they fit into that and the so so I think it operates on across a number of different levels and these sort of debates about inequality. Um, traditionally, I think they've been a bit reticent to engage or acknowledge that too much. And again, I think it just sort of remains to be seen whether the, the pressures to address those kinds of issues will bring about changes. I, I just, I don't quite know what's gonna happen with that, to be honest. <laughs>